Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Spies. Welcome to On Her Game. Tiffany Cromwell is one of Australia's leading road cyclists and an incredible ambassador for women's cycling. The Olympian and two-time Kong Games athlete has placed fourth of the Commonwealth Games, fifth of the World Championships and has a bunch of stage wins and event wins as well. The success in this sport can't be measured in placings and individual results. Her role within teams runs deeper and is a key reason why she's been successful for such a long period over her career. One glance on Tiff's Instagram and you'd be carried away into her idyllic European world, living in Monaco, racing and training in picturesque and fascinating places around the world. But the reality of her success has been a tough and challenging road. Women in the sport have struggled for equality, and as a young Aussie in Europe trying to make it in the sport, it's been incredibly trying at times. But Tiffany's story is one of resilience. She endured four Olympic cycles before finally earning her chance to compete at the Games. These days, she competes for Canyon Shram overseas and continues to travel extensively with her partner and F1 driver Valtteri Bottas, who has even been spotted handing out bidons to her team on the side of the road. But it all started for Tiff back down under, growing up in the Adelaide Hills. I think I was always quite an active child, um, you know, running around, climbing trees. You know, I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, so, and I have two brothers. <laughs> so our, like, upbringing was always being outside, being in the fresh air, you know, not in front of screens and things like this. Uh, started with ballet, I think, when I was four years old. I think as most young girls do these days. Um <laughs> But then there was a period there where, yeah, I went a bit tomboy phase. And so then I was like playing basketball. Um, and yeah, but it's just, you know, just a very normal childhood. Um, yeah, doing my thing. I always hear basketball associated with you, obviously with cycling, but, um, yeah. but yeah, often I've heard basketball being thrown around as something that you took up as um, a child. Why basketball and, and how good were you and how far did you get in that sport? Yeah, so basketball was my sport and you if you see me and you see my height and I was a late grower, like you'd wonder why. But it was just in my family. Like um, I think both my parents played like also now, never at the highest level, but dad was always a coach. Um, then both my brothers played as well. So naturally is when I was as young as you could be for basketball, I started playing at the local club, which was Sturt. It's just what we did. It was, I think it's just because it was within the family and, you know, it was after school, go do the basketball on the weekends, Mm -hmm. started playing, you know, with different clubs as well. So it was like the district level within South Australia. And then there was also like a Hills League and played at school as well. Like when I look back, it was probably at least five days a week I was playing, but never was able to kind of really break through. Like, I guess I was good enough, like as kind of point guard type player, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we were in the air, which was you were in the state metropolitan region. So then, you Mm -hmm. know, to make like even a state team was super competitive. And yeah, I just never quite had that next level to be able to make it beyond there. But it was just something that I always did and enjoyed. And yeah, it was just kind of how life took me, simply because I guess because of the background of my family. Was that the era as well where we played in like our scungies or am I a little bit too much older Just, than you? <laughs> I think it started that and then we went full baggy because I remember it went from, yeah, short shorts, then no, it was like have to have it down at the knee and, you know, like the big, yeah. I think the women at the national level still wore like the one piece, but yeah, at like the district yeah. level when we're growing, it was always just, yeah, the singlets yeah. and 
shorts and Michelle big Tim and baggy. Yeah. <laughs> so what about cycling? When did cycling come into your life and how did it come into your life? Yeah, so with cycling, I always like to say it kind of found me. Um, I was fortunate to come through the Sassy Talent ID program. So it was, was at school and, you know, just in regular PE class, like they were like, oh, yeah, we do a fitness test. So you do your shuttle run. I think we did like vertical jump. You did, you know, all these basic things that they can measure just what your physiology is. Then they sent our results down to Sassy, and this was when I was in year seven. So for me, it was my first year of high school. Uh, then got a letter. They said, oh, your results look good. We want to test again just to make sure they're correct. So went down to Sassy. I think it was on a Saturday morning. Did the same series of tests and then again a few weeks later got a letter to say would like to invite you to the Adelaide Superdrome to come out to do a track session <laughs> and there you go you're welcome to accept the invitation or not now I was a bit taken back I was like cycling never thought cycling um back then it was a very unknown sport I guess you know seeing somebody riding on the road was like oh what's that weird person type thing yeah <laughs> um so then we went out to the velodrome and yeah, I was handed a track bike and it's like, yeah, go ride around, you know, but the catch, like there's no brakes on a track bike. Like, so oh. don't stop pedaling and don't ride too slow on the corners. Cause if you know the banking, if you go too slow, you can slide down. So it went with that. And then yeah, a couple of sessions and they put me into the, into the lab for VO2 max test. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's all these things along that I had what they thought had the potential um, and then joined a group of about 10 other kids, all with the same introduction. And yeah, and that was kind of how cycling started. What went through your mind when you're getting, doing all this testing? Did your mind go, wow, maybe I could be something or other? Or did you just go through the motions? What was it like? I think for me, I just went through the motions. It's like, I was always, and still am, like a very active, active person. So it was always any chance to do something like I'll try all different sports um and this was just another thing like yeah I was a good runner as well so the thing I think that they noticed was my shuttle run was like a high score but I just had that competitive edge I was like yeah I just want to be the one there for the longest and <laughs> things like this so for me it's like okay something new um and I if I'm honest like it wasn't love at first sight with cycling I was teeny tiny when I started like I was like 145 centimeters and like 35 kilo or something yeah, mm-hmm. so on the track, like, that's not the most beneficial and and I wasn't the strongest by any means. I was probably the worst in my group. So, and I still had the love for basketball, but I also have this mentality where I find it hard to quit something. I was like, yeah, I'll just keep doing it. It's something to do to to use my energy. And, yeah, I had a few friends who was doing it as well, like, that I met from the group. And, yeah, and then it was when we eventually then transitioned and went onto the road and did my first road race and I got a bronze medal in the state championships. I was like, actually, this is okay. <laughs> there must be something to that testing though, right? Like given you said you were so small and didn't have as much power, but they did identify that cycling was for you and now that's been your career. Yeah, I know. It's, you know, it is a fantastic program and sure it's like, Maybe they don't get a huge success rate, but I think for them it was always about finding that needle in a haystack. So finding that one or two that will go all the way because it was always about, you know, getting to the Olympics. Like for us, it was meant to be Beijing. Obviously, it took a little longer than that, but (laughs) that was always, you know, they could say, okay, we can invest our money, try to find, give kids the opportunity, give them the best pathway possible to hopefully then in the long run become, you know, Olympians, medalists, 
because that's the whole cycle of, you know, they're just wanting to inspire the next generation. And with that, it's through trying to get athletes to the highest level and competing on the world stage and bringing home medals. So, but yeah, like I said, it was always at the start that dream, like to get to the Olympics. But I also just saw it as an opportunity, like to do something new and start traveling around Australia and things like this. And, but it is a, yeah, a great program. And I know they've changed over the years of doing a bit more come and try style because I think they saw the dropout rate was quite high with certain sports but flip side is you know there have been a number of other I know in other sports but also if you look at cycling like Nettie Edmondson she came through that and her mm-hmm. brother as well um, I think a few of the other track riders like Matt Glatzer as well I think he came through the TID program and so it does show it, it does work and you know we have had quite a lot of success out of it so you know, when I tell that to some of my teammates here in Europe, like that that was my opportunity, you know, they have nothing like that kind of support. They don't have sports institutes. It's, yeah, they have to come through other pathways. So, yeah, we're quite spoiled that with Australia we have those opportunities. Do you think you would have started cycling if not for that program? No, <laughs> most likely not. I I always say if, uh, if uh, it didn't happen, I probably would have been a runner, I think, because, you know, basketball was always the love, but I knew probably couldn't go to a very high level with it but yeah, I was always like a strong runner and started doing those competitions I think I probably would have kind of dabbled in the athletics like running field. So how did you make that switch to the road then and is that you said when you started getting medals that's when you started to love the sport as well did the medals come with the road or still with the track? Uh, first on the road so as a junior like in Australia it's very common to do road and track like because normally track would be in the summer months, road in the winter months. Um, I went through some years on the track where I could be strong, but at the national level, you know, I was never able, you know, to get medals, um, yeah, at, at the track nationals. But on the road, you know, I did have them a few times and continued track and road all the way through to the end of juniors under 19. And in the junior under 19 year, I went to junior worlds on the road. So then it was kind of weeks. I sat down with the coach at the time and, we decide, okay, what next? As I was about to step to the elite ranks, I was like, we saw straight out like road is where my strength is. It's a path I should take because reality is I'm probably not going to be part of the national program on the track. It, and so, yeah, we focused more trying to get into the national program on the road, doing the few international races that we had in Australia at the time, like the Geelong Tour, Geelong World Cup, these ones. And, and yeah, just took that path. And, you know, at that point I was on a scholarship with the SA Sports Institute so, yeah, I just had that support and then the opportunities to then go over to Europe, like with a development team and, and you know, just it was just a natural path to go. Um, were you in the Australian program at the same time as Amy Gillett? I was, it was at the crossover, but I was actually in Europe when it happened. So I was a junior then and we'd been with the women's team at that time. You know, it was my first year junior, 2005, and, yeah, we'd been with the, with the girls just before at a race, my teammate, junior teammate, she was racing with them because I couldn't because as a first year, you weren't allowed to race the elite, but second year you could. And yeah, then they went to Germany and yeah, it was yeah, obviously such a devastating moment. And But I remember like we woke up one morning, we we're at the, the national team house in, in Italy and yeah, the coach at the time, she was kind of like, yeah, had some news and just got told, yeah, there was a very bad accident. And so yeah, I like wasn't part of that program, but I, we were there, like we were juniors and it was pretty, yeah, obviously such a huge tragedy. And I'd been with Amy as well. Like she would, 
being part of Sassy a little bit with a couple of our trips too. So didn't know her that well, but have met her a little bit, but, you know, known a number of the other girls as well that were part of that incident. And yeah, it's, you know, it's like, yeah. I'm kind Just, of remember, trying to remember what year that was, but for those who aren't. It's 2005. You know, 2005, when yep. it was the Australian road cycling team, they were training, weren't they? And yeah, got hit by it was a car. in Germany. Yeah. Mm, and Amy Gillett, yep. unfortunately, um, died in that incident, which was incredibly sad. Do you remember how you felt at the time, just learning, learning that that had happened in your sport, someone that you knew um, and knew well? It would have, did it rock you a little bit just going, okay, well, just such a, an experience like that? Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it takes you back for a minute. I think I maybe handled it a little bit better versus like my teammate, it was Amanda Spratt. Like she, it hurt her, like you could tell it affected her, you know, even more. But it is, it's always just that, that shock, like you just can't believe it. Like how is, you know, just like that, like, you know, it's as simple as, yeah, she was just a bit ahead of the group and the car was out of control. So she got the brunt of it. And it was like, you know, it makes you think, wow, that could be any of us. Like, and there's been, you know, a number of incidents where I've heard that had people who have known personally and here one day, go the next because of, you know, a simple incident like that. So for sure it was, yeah. I think it just made you kind of like, it just took me back, like, you know, step back for a minute, like you just almost couldn't believe it and being so close to you and, you know, having been with them like the week before, it's, yeah, it for sure makes you think about the appreciation of life, like knowing, you know, like we need to be, appreciate every moment and and things like that. Yeah. Um, I want you to explain to us, because I love I love cycling, I love the sport, but people who don't understand the sport don't understand that it's it's not an individual sport, it is a team sport, you talked about that before. Can you just explain road cycling, the responsibilities and how you cooperate and, and do the teamwork to get your rider out in front? Yeah, so with cycling, it is that weird one because people can't understand it, like the person who crossed the finish line first, they do win. They're the one that gets all the glory and on the podium, but it's a complete effort that, you know, to get that one person across the line. And it's it's like any sport, you know, everybody has their role. Like, let's go to basketball, you have your centre, you have your guards, you have, you know, these sorts of things. With cycling, it's like you have your domestiques, we call it, which they're your workers. They're the ones who take the wind, do the hard work so that your leader can have as easy a ride as possible until they need to make their move. Then you'll have maybe some rule air riders for the looking for the opportunity because yes, you can have your plan A with your main rider plan everything perfectly, but nine times out of 10, it doesn't go that way. You always need your plan B, C, D. Like I always like to call cycling chess on wheels because it is like you have your ideas, you're seeing what the other team's doing, the other team, but yeah, the idea is to have your lead rider as fresh as possible for as long as possible because it is such a demanding sport and riding in the wind takes energy. Fighting for wheels takes energy. Trying to get to the right position into a critical sector takes energy if you don't have people to help you. So it's even to do that big attack, like normally the first attack doesn't work. It's the second, it's the third one. So if you can have a teammate that puts himself out there to make that big attack, to cause other teams to chase, then they can then counter off of that. So it's all things like this. Or or you see like in a sprint final, like you have like a whole train of people. And again, it's just trying to make it easier for your lead rider. So when they make that big effort, they can make it at 100% and not 
you know, having to be exposed too early because then that's when the other one who maybe has a stronger team can benefit and they're the ones who get ahead. So, yeah, it's it's kind of tricky to explain because there's a lot that happens in a race, but at the end <laughs> of the day, it's just about, yeah, the role is, you know, depending what your responsibility is, you know what you have to do within the race and, yeah, you always make that plan before and it's like, okay, I know today I need to do this or tomorrow I have to deliver the result and, you know, use my teammates, even like getting water bottles, going back to the car, getting information, coming back for them, all these little things are kind of, you know, how it is like a team sport. Is it frustrating sometimes that people from maybe outside the sports don't quite understand that, you know, success isn't based just on placings and standings or where you came in a race, but, you know, on everything else, like you've done your job and if you've done your job well, then you shouldn't be in the placings, right? So, um, is it frustrating sometimes when people don't understand that or don't or, or rate your success based on placings and things? Yeah, of course. It's always, you know, like when you have to kind of explain to people, they're like, oh, how's your race? And, you know, when you know like your role is earlier, it's like, yeah, trying to explain to them, yeah, the race was great. Like, sure, I finished 10 minutes down. If you look on paper, okay, doesn't look good. But yeah, trying to have to explain like what you did <laughs> and like how as for the team was a good result. Yeah, it, it was so much frustrating, but for sure, like it's sometimes hard when you like, you know, need to kind of explain yourself. Those who get it, they understand. Yeah, you did a great job. You did your did your role. But yeah, when, you know, if he was just looking at the pure results and judging on that, then of course, yeah, it can be a little bit frustrating to kind of explain what you actually did and, you know, and how you were like fundamental to the team's success and things like that. Even if on paper it doesn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> you've um at the last olympics you were the team captain and that's a role that you've played so many times before but can you just explain what that role of the team captain does yeah so obviously with the team captain it's kind of the one taking the responsibility on the road because we do have cars that follow in most races you have a radio which communicates to the team and amongst the riders so you do get information from them but normally the information can be delayed because they will sometimes get footage on the TV, but it might be a bit delayed or the radio information. So you need to have somebody who can be there in the moment to make quick decisions and, you know, take the responsibility for the team. If it's like, okay, moves are happening. It's like, okay, what's the plan? What do we do now to kind of direct the team? Like it's like the conductor of an orchestra type thing. Like, okay, you move now, you do this. And so, of course, there's pressure because, you know, it's up to you to think what's the best decision right now in this moment for the team to benefit us. Um, and you wonder, it's okay, team captain isn't the team leader. And the reason you have them separate is because the team leader shouldn't have that extra stress. You need somebody else to be able to think and be calm and make those decisions while the team leader can just focus on what they need to do to win the race. So it's... Yeah, so that's kind of the responsibility. But in a race like the Olympics or the World Championships, there's even greater pressure because there we don't have the radios. So there it's really important to have, you know, a strong captain who can read the race at the right time, guide the team, you know, for what they need to do to make sure, yeah, we have this unity and can perform the plan that we set out to do, you know, uh, that we've said before the race. So that's kind of like the role. It's, yeah, as I said, it's just the eyes and ears on the race and kind of like the centre point for the team to kind of be around so then if you have a question you can ask your team captain say like what do I need to do now you know if you're if you're unsure 
2014 Commonwealth Games was a massive moment. We talk about you being team captain and your different roles and the domestiques, but um, you were the protected rider in that race. Um, that was a huge moment. What a finish for your yeah. race. On paper, we talk about that. It's a fourth, but yeah. it was a photo finish. It was like, there was yeah. nothing in it, wasn't it? And that's, yeah. some people talk about that being the hardest place to come fourth just off the podium. How do you look back on that time? Yeah, definitely during that part of my career, I was in that period where I was fighting for victories more often or even, you know, podiums and top tens. And I had been, you know, becoming kind of like the main rider whenever we came as an Australian team. And of course, it's a massive honour to have that position, but comes pressure, as I said. But, you know, Commonwealth Games, like, I knew it was a course that suited me. It was a street circuit through through Glasgow, these short, punchy climbs, and one I was really excited about. And, yeah, I had that opportunity to be the rider going for the result. And, okay, it was Lizzie Dignan. She was Armistead then. She had gone on the attack, and we couldn't match that. And then there was Emma Pooley as well. But then there was, like, I remember two or three of us coming in, and I was like, okay, I can still get a medal here, and I believed I could. And it was a time where I was – my sprint was quite strong – and, you know, it was it was a sprint between us and it was like this small little drag and just tried to time it right. And, yeah, it was obviously a huge moment, but at the same time so frustrating, like being so close. And if I look back, because I maybe I go into sometimes the panic situations where I like I want this group to stay away so I don't have to compete against more people for the final. So utilising maybe a bit too much energy in those final kilometres, but at the same time, yeah. I believe I did do a good sprint and I was coming up, but then, you know, it's even these little things where you wind back, like I wasn't able to do the throw, like I was a bit too late and it was less than a centimetre was the measurement in the end. And I kind of like knew deep down I didn't get it, but I remember because it was Ashley Moorman who got the bronze from South Africa and she was next to me and I heard her say, ah. And so I thought I had that small gleam of hope, like maybe I got there, but, you know, obviously like, you know, as we talked about, like getting medals is is a massive thing, particularly at the Commonwealth World Championships and Olympics level. So, yeah, it's like bittersweet. Like, obviously, I saw a strong performance for myself, but, you know, coming so close to bringing home a medal and not quite getting there. Yes, there was the elements of disappointment. But now looking back to be in the position to have that opportunity, yeah, it was pretty special and, you know, something I definitely will keep with me for, like, my whole career. How soon were you able to put it aside? Like we can talk about it now, but how was there deep hurt at the time coming so close and how did you kind of overcome that or were you just straight on thinking, okay, well, I I executed my race, did the best that I could? I don't think, I never went through the massive down for sure. Um, For sure there was a disappointment and even for my team, you know, to not be able to reward them for the efforts but at the same time, I know I gave everything I had. And yes, okay, rewind, like, could have I done that through? Could have I done my sprint a little bit better? But at the end of the day, it's just what it was meant to be. And I think we're fortunate because, you know, with many sports, it's like that is the key moment. And then they don't have more competition. For us with cycling, it's like we had that, but then I had to go back to my trade team. It's business as usual for the last part of the season. So then I was able to reset, go with that. And then even like that year, we had the world championships as well, like every year. But, you know, I I then went on and had a super strong performance there as well. Um, so, yes, there was always that disappointment. But I 
at least from memory, I don't think it stayed with me for too long. It was kind of like, okay, you know, it would have been really nice, <laughs> but at the same time, now I focus my tech on to the next goals. And I think the next goal was the world championships. Like there was a few races before that, but, and then, you know, I, I got fifth at that world championships. It's the only time I've actually been able to contest for the medal in the final. Like we were a sprint coming in and the closest I've ever got, you know, to a world title and just being in that position was something I didn't think was possible. So, you know, then I could take the disappointment of the Commonwealth Games, say, okay, also a near miss, like being so close to the podium, but at the same time, for me, it was like a bigger result than what I expected from myself as well. So, you know. 2018 Com Games at home. I'd imagine your parents don't get too many opportunities to see you compete in, you know, in major events at home in your own backyard in Australia. Um, And you're a team captain there. And he did your job and got the gold for Australia. What was that like coming off that 2014 as well? Like, take me back there. How big a moment was that? Yeah, that one was hugely special. You know, such a nice team to be a part of. Like, we, you know, any international event you can do on home soil, those are always ones you want to put your hand up with and you want to be part of that team. And, you know, I, I made the team for that. Um, yeah, obviously Gold Coast, like, the, the games itself was such a cool atmosphere, like, the village atmosphere and everything. You could just feel the excitement of the Australian people and obviously yeah, I have my parents there and even like some of my extended family because, you know, again, like you say, they never had the chance to see me race and see even only until more recently they couldn't even see it on TV because it just wasn't available. But, yeah, with that race, you know, there was the pressure because we know we had the fastest rider with Chloe. We knew it was a course we could do what we wanted on it and we knew we had a strong team and so yes I knew like my two key roles was that team captain keeping it together making the right decisions and being that final lead out so I felt like I ticked the box pretty well with the team captain role you know there was moments where I think there was a break where like do we chase yet don't we and but it was that moment for the sprint like I think just earlier on that race like my legs were starting to cramp I was like oh no you know I have this one role just deliver Chloe to like the point that she needs for the sprint and it was a headwind on on the on the finish straight along the coast, and we're coming in, we're good. But I was there, I had her, we're all sorted, everything. And then I think it was a Welsh team. They started their sprint, and I was like, okay, I have to go. And I just remember just giving such a hard sprint. Like for me, like my finish line was, you know, from that moment, it was like just go until Chloe passes me. And yeah, when so I did, and I was like. Mano Mano and then was edging ahead and then Chloe did her thing and went off of me and obviously she did a commanding sprint and I think for all of us it's just such a great moment because you know being Commonwealth Games gold medalist is a big deal Chloe said that herself in in (laughs) an interview because you know outside of the Commonwealth Nations people don't really know how big the Commonwealth Games are and then obviously being there as a team on Australian soil celebrating that and knowing we all believed in the plan we all believed in delivering her for the gold medal and she had the confidence as well for it. It was just one of those really nice atmospheres where, you know, I didn't care where I finished because I knew I was part of that performance of helping Chloe get gold. And I think we all felt that. So it was because sometimes you can be left with a team, like you might get the result, but feel like you didn't give your role a hundred percent or didn't quite get everything perfect on that day. But this was one of the rare times where everything went, you know, almost perfectly and, yeah, it was a very satisfying feeling, you know, to know we were like an integral part to helping Chloe get, you know, that gold medal. Yeah, absolutely. 
You talk about that talent ID initially being so they can get athletes for the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games, I guess you guys were targeted for, the first one was the Beijing Olympics (laughs) in 2008. Um, Yet your Olympic debut wasn't until last year in 2021. Talk to me about your Olympic journey. Yeah, so obviously, you know, that's always been, as I said early on, like the dream. You know, it's always been the one thing I've been chasing. Like I've been fortunate to tick a lot of boxes in my career, you know, like racing the biggest races, winning some of the biggest races, competing at world championships, competing at Commonwealth Games, but there was always this one one piece that had been missing and one that I knew before my career. It's something that I wanted to achieve, but maybe as I was getting, you know, down having the near misses, I was starting to believe maybe it wasn't going to happen and yeah how was that going to make me feel if I ended my career and you know not able to tick that box and because if we rewind it's like okay Beijing was maybe a little bit unrealistic um because I was still very early on in my career and at the time we had quite a strong group of Australian women then the next one was 2012 it was at the time of the rebuild it was obviously after the accident so you had the accident and then you had Obviously, a lot of girls retired after the 2008 Games. So then we had this new crop of young riders and mm. kind of lacking the experience, but, it, you know, it meant a new opportunity for the Olympics. And, you know, there was, at that time, it was only a team of three. So obviously spots are super hard. And I was like there, like, you know, having a really strong year. And But I just came short as kind of like, yeah, we chose this rider of you for this reasons. And maybe that time it was like, because I'd gone off a bad year in 2011 and I said, okay, I didn't think it was possible to be part of the mix for the Olympic team. And then it was as the season started in 2012, I started quite strongly and suddenly I was in the mix. So I kind of took it as a surprise and would have been really great if I made it. Was disappointed not to make it, but, you know, in that situation, it was kind of like, okay, move on. Then we came obviously to Rio and I came off the back of being one of the key riders for the Australian team for the previous years from 13 onwards of like strong results of the world championships, things like this. And like we did again, have a strong group of women, but nobody who was really that standout leader competing and winning races. So we knew there was a lot of us at that similar level. And I'd gone the previous year to go look at the course in Brazil and do all the things like for the steps to like try to make the team. And, but this time around, I think just the pressure got to me. Like I started 2016 I had so much pressure on myself trying to achieve this goal and just all the races weren't going how I wanted them to go. And I could see the other Australian riders like, you know, getting these results or going stronger. And, you know, of course, when you're going for Australian team results, uh, team selection, you're always judging yourself on the other Australian riders. And I was just watching that dream get further away. And I kind of had a really bad point just before the selection. And, you know, then I came to us like, okay got the call, didn't make the team, like, you know, first reserve, this, that, and yeah, that was... crushing? That was the most crushing? Yeah. I knew deep down, yes, I wasn't in the position where I probably would have, should have deserved a spot. Like, I knew I was close to some of the other riders, but, you know, I bounced back and then went on and had a pretty strong second half of the season. But, you know, as in that moment, it's just like, you're again seeing your dream just get taken away from you. And you've, like, what, been in the sport for over a decade at that stage? Exactly. Well? Like, exactly. Yes, long time. Yeah. Did you come close to quitting at some some of those stages? Definitely. Um, probably not as far as, like, there was a time way back, like, Rewind 2011, yes, because I had a really difficult year. But, 
yeah, some of those moments you just, I would definitely had the big lows and it really took a lot of energy or having the right people around me to kind of bounce back from that. But I think each time I had those lows, I always took the time to kind of take that step back. And then I'd remind myself like why I love the sport and why I love cycling. But, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, a pressure sport and you put, you know, you have to put so much effort in with your training every day and when you're tired. And so it is, you know, when you're not getting the rewards that you want out of it, then yes, you always question yourself and it's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then you just let yourself breathe and remind yourself, yeah, we're pretty lucky to do what we're doing, do something that you love, get paid to do it and travel the world and, and yeah, and get to race on the world stage. What's your proudest achievement in racing, would you say? Um, well, definitely making Olympics, being there and having a super strong performance in Tokyo. Like, yes, again, if we say on paper, the result isn't what we came there to do, but what I got out of myself in that race, you know, I was very proud, proud of that. But, you know, if I'm looking, you know, pure results-wise, then, yeah, there was definitely a couple that stood out. It was like my first big, big win. It was at the Giro d'Italia um, for women. And yeah, it was like a day when I was kind of in this moment of breakthrough. And yeah, we had a team where we had some riders who were our key riders more experienced. And it was, yeah, I went on this crazy 100k breakaway. And I said myself didn't believe, you know, I could make it and win the stage. But, you know, people get to, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. And it's just one where it's like, I think this is what I struggle with the most. I don't believe in myself enough. So it's, but, you know, but a lot of people believe my abilities more than what I do. So is that, and then, you know, winning that, that stage on like one of the biggest races on the women's calendar, that was super special. And then the other one was definitely on the pet newsblad. It's like the first of the classics, um, it was 2013 and yeah, it was my personal life had some stuff going on. So, you know, I was kind of going into the race, like, yeah, just for me, it was the release and it was just one of those days where it just felt like magic. I was just again, I was going in there to support our leader and just came at the race, you know, I took an opportunity just doing my role and it was a race winning move. And, but same thing, like it was, okay, I really wanted this. I wanted to be able to win, but I had one rider with me and I was like, okay, even a podium is good. But I, so I pushed, but I was like, oh, I do. And then, you know, obviously sprinting and having that feeling like, yeah, I was just, you know, <laughs> proud that I could actually achieve something like that. You talk about 2011 being a tough year for you. Why was that one so tough? I think it was just, it was a mixture of many different things. Like I just moved, you know, at the time I was living in Spain the year before I moved to Monaco that year. Um, I was with my boyfriend at the time and as everything was quite new on a personal level and kind of find my feet, I'd gone to, yeah, a new team as well. And things didn't, weren't really working out there. Like just weren't seeing eye to eye with certain things, weren't getting the race starts that I wanted. So couldn't keep the form that I wanted as well. And then mid-year we decided, okay, we went our separate ways. I left that team and I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I have nothing. Then I was fortunate to get an opportunity to join another team. But as with everything, like there are small teams as well. So, you know, you're kind of doing it, just trying to do what you can. But I couldn't put the effort in like on the training. Like I'd always train, but I just couldn't push myself hard enough to what I needed to. And it's just, yeah, again, one of those things you just didn't feel like you're getting the rewards that you felt like you wanted from what, for the, all the effort you're putting in. So I think it was just a whole range of factors and, but I, I pushed through it. You know, it was at the moment when I left, you know, the first team and was in this limbo and that's, I was like, do I still want to do this? Do I still want to race my bike, be in Europe, be away from family and friends in Australia. But 
it was that moment you step back, had the opportunity to keep racing and, you know, I stuck with it. But then, you know, towards the end of that year, I did have the opportunity to have to join. It was at the time the Green Edge team when they first started in 2012. But, you know, if it wasn't for those opportunities at the end, I quite easily could have hung up my bike because I just was just going through the motions and but not enjoying it. And I'd kind of lost the love for the sport a little bit. And I think that's is just so many factors altogether that made it where I was like, okay, yeah, just had lost my love a bit, but then it quickly came back, which was a good thing, obviously. Can I talk to you about, I want to talk about the state of women's cycling um, and just how tough it was in those early days with contracts and and pay and, and everything. And I mean, you're seeing the men's riders when they join the teams overseas and, you know, their pay packets are, are quite lucrative um, yeah. and the support that they get. But in those early days when you went over, what was the state of women's cycling back then and how tough was that? Yeah, it certainly, you know, was a tough sport. Like the women doing it back then definitely weren't doing it for the money. Like when you hear, you know, the contracts, like a good contract was maybe 20000 a year and I was nowhere near that, you know, coming in as an entry-level rider, you're like lucky if you even get paid. So things like that. And sure, it's not always about the money, but when it's like, okay, you actually need to live, you need to pay for a rent, you need to feed yourself and do all these things. Yes, it's tough, particularly when you put so much energy in. And I remember like, you know, when I think back then, like people always talk down to women cycling. Like they said, oh, you know, like if you take it from the men, like, oh, women cycling, bit of a joke, this, that. And yeah, she'd always try to fight it, but at the same time, you know, deep down it hurt. And I think we just didn't get the respect that we deserved back then. And sure, the sport was in a much different place then. Like it was less competitive, but that's because, you know, people couldn't dedicate their whole time to it. Some people had to have a normal job and try to race their bikes. Or if you were racing full time, you'd have to live in a team house. So you couldn't really have independence and things like this. So, and that's why you did see a lot of women not fulfilling their potential because it was like, A, they want to stop and have a family. And back then there was zero support for that. It was basically like, if you want a family, you have to quit your sport. Um, and same as, or they just wanted to actually be able to put some savings in the bank account. So they're like, okay, I'm going to quit, you know, before I'm 30 because I'm sick of struggling. And I just, you know, I love what I do, but it's not worth that much energy to give it everything. Or, you know, particularly the Australian writers, like they might have a partner who was back in Australia and they didn't have the means to be able to support them in Europe and things like this. So, just things like that it was always tough. And, you know, you, we were kind of talking just the other day at the dinner table with some of my teammates saying, you know, like back then you were happy just for like 1,000 euro more on your contract. Like that's kind of what you're fighting for. But I think what always hurt me was like, particularly when you want to talk is like, you just had to really fight your worth, like saying to a guy like, yeah, you can just walk into a team and you get paid what minimum 50 grand. And for us, it's like, giving so much energy as many hours you know sacrifice so much of my life and for what ten thousand or something so i think it's always yeah that was tough but at the same time we didn't have exposure like you know it was before social media there wasn't any tv like so of course that's why there wasn't any money in the sport but it's great to see though as it's progressed you know women's sport in general is much more a bigger conversation in today's world it's you know part of us really pushing, making that effort as women to say, yes, no, we deserve the recognition. We're working hard. We're strong. We're capable of a lot. And I think as it's grown, like 
sponsors team that, even the respect from the men's peloton, we get way more respect now as well, which I think, you know, it's nice, it's appreciative to show that, yeah, like we do take this seriously. We do it because we love it. And yes, of course, it's nice if you can put your savings in the bank account. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's just, you just want to be respectful for what you're doing. And yeah, I think just in the early years, you just didn't have that. And just also didn't have the team support as well. Like teams worked on shoestring budgets. Like you didn't have, you know, a lot of physios or, you know, all these little things that nowadays, like if you want to perform your best, they're super important. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, is change happening at the rate that you would expect in cycling? It's definitely changing fast. Of course, we always want more. Uh, we yeah. always want it to move quicker, and but we celebrate these these small changes in a big way. But, you know, we also have to be patient. Like, of course, it's great to say, yes, we want to be here, here, here. But at least now, like all the time you're seeing, okay, this race wants to give more exposure, give the women prime time. This team, you know, we're going to like make the minimum wage higher. Even like the maternity leave, that's been a massive one for women's cycling. Um, and we've seen a few riders who have really embraced that and showing that, you know, you shouldn't have to stop your career if you want a family. And I think that's, and to see teams supporting that as well and the partners supporting that, because as I said earlier before, that was like one of these, you know, no-go zone. Um but I think it's still going in the right way for sure. Maybe it could be slightly faster or we could push, you know, even higher. But if I compare like where it was to where it is now, it's exciting to see that it is continuing moving forward. But the key is, you know, we need to not just sit and stop and say, no, we're happy with this. We need to always keep pushing to say, you know, we want to, it's not only for us, it's also paving way for the next generation. And that's what we want. Like having these big events now, like we have the Women's Tour de France this year, like the first time in 30 years, but it's going to be done in a really big way and like Zwift have come on board and, you know, the things that they're doing to really give us that platform to be to a global audience, you know, that's exciting for us. And I look at for myself, yes, exciting that I can do something that people can see, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but then, you know, like my friend's daughter or something, they can say, yeah, I want to be that. I want to be the next, mm. you know, whoever. <laughs> yeah. versus you know, when I was growing up like I didn't have that like yes there were the female pros but we didn't know them like I knew mm. a couple of the Aussies like Anoni Wood and Sarah Carrigan because of you know the results that they had but Being in the program real- yeah yeah reality was I was looking at Stuart O'Grady or Robbie McEwen or like mm. these household male names so I think mm. that's what's exciting and you know that we can pave this pathway they were talking about this Tour de France being like the first in 30 years but there has been other kind of formats of a women's tour de France, but they've never really lasted or worked um, for various reasons, various frustrating reasons as well. Um, What makes this one different this year that it could work? And also there's no Alps or Pyrenees as well in this race. And I mean, they're normally key parts of of a tour de France. Yeah. So, you know, well, when we say there were tour de France before, it was listed like route de France or there was this other one called... La Corsa. No, La Corsa was... La Corsa was coming as just a one-day race, kind of. That was mm. the first step into kind of making this Tour de France platform for women. Whereas before, it was just run by smaller organisations, like the stands were super low, and it just wasn't respected as a Tour de France for the women, these other stage races. Because, you know, back in the day, there was a proper Tour de France, but when I hear from some of the women who raced it, you know, they said, like, 
what they had to go through was was crazy, you know, like terrible accommodation, like 10 hour transfers, all these things. Like they did get to race on like outdoor wear and things like this, but the conditions of how they had to do the race was pretty low. So as you fast forward, yes, okay, we then had Lacoste come in. That was kind of, so it's the organization A, so they're the ones who have said, okay, we're going to do it. But of course, with them, we've always been a little bit like, I don't know, best of, like they they sh- trying to show they're doing good thing with women's cycling, but then when you see certain steps they take, it's like, are they really giving everything that they could? So that's why I think sometimes we've been a little bit critical to them. So that's why we thought, okay, Lacoste, yeah, that's Sam ticking that box saying, we're giving women this global platform on a day of the men and happy days that will keep the women happy. But the fact they have now progressed, it does say that, okay, maybe they are kind of taking care a bit more. So yeah, the Lacoste was that bit, but then it was like, of course, we're pushing, pushing, pushing. We want our own Tour de France. And not just because, you know, the Tour de France is the only race, but it's like, it is the only race that if you talk to an everyday person on the street, they know the Tour de France. To have our own audience at another time, yeah. sure, maybe we won't get the Moon's people crowd, but we'll get enough that people are interested. We'll and build you know, it. Yeah, exactly. Completely build it. And exactly. that's always frustrated me as well, the timings. I remember the Giro Rosa, which is like the women's version, the Giro d'Italia. Yeah. That always started and was going on when the Tour de France was going on and the world cycling media was focused on on the men's France when the women were competing and it always really frustrated me. So timings it's, it's are really important. Now, you talk about um, being in a good state of your life at the moment and, um, and Valtteri Bottas is your partner and... The travel that you two do is just amazing um, as well. But can you tell us how did you two meet? Yeah, so uh, with us it was we both living in Monaco for a number of years. Um, and, yeah, it was simply just through some mutual friends in Monaco. Like we're fortunate with Monaco. You do get a lot of other sports people that kind of cross over, and particularly with motorsport and cyclists. A lot of motorsport people use cycling for training. Um, cyclists, a lot of cyclists are just into watching their sport because I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of overlaps. So you are fortunate to end up on rides together or we did this event like the Riviera bike race, this water bike race thing that, you know, they, they do and like it brings together people from all different sports and the general community. And yeah, it's just as simple as that. Just kind of met randomly through friends and kind of like stayed in touch like we had our different lives at the time and then, yeah, just it kind of went naturally like that. And since then, I've been able to obviously share the love of cycling. And for me, you know, I've always been interested in motorsports, but seeing it firsthand, it's, you know, it's quite exciting. And yeah, it's been, you know, a pretty crazy ride with him so far. And <laughs> but I just love it because we both, you know, are very determined, you know, sports people always try to achieve the best in our field, but at the same time, we're able to give enough to each other for the support as well, you know what we're both doing which I think that's really important for me it's been you know like let's call yeah life-changing because to have somebody who can support me in the times I need it like you know and to share it as well it's yeah it's special. Was it weird to be kind of flung into that world of F1s where there is paparazzi where there is so much attention where there is such an intense global stage that you've kind of been flung into if you taking it in your stride how are you dealing with that yeah there's definitely certain things that you realize uh, that are, are a bit different because obviously you know I guess still if you look at women's cycling it's quite a niche sport like you can walk down a street and you won't be known 
um, the F1 circus, it's just another level. And yes, if I'm with Valtteri walking down the street, it is pretty common for him to get stopped. I think for me, the harder part was, was maybe on the social media side. Like I've always said, you know, you don't let it get you. But again, like with us, I've always had like kind, supportive people who, you know, have comment on my things. But, you know, when I enter kind of his world, you realise there's a lot of mean people out there. Like, and you're like, what are you, you know, why is your life so bad that you need to like, even just make, you know, comments of things that are just completely unnecessary so I think that took a little bit of getting used to. Like I've learned how to deal with it better. Like Valtteri's incredibly good at blocking it out, but, you know, it's not even directed at me. It's even the stuff that I would see people saying about him and because obviously you know everything's going on and a lot of people don't understand so much that goes into that sport behind the scenes and, you know, everyone's a couch expert. So that was definitely a bit eye-opening. But in general, it's, you know, it's been a fun circus to be a part of. Of course, I came into it when it was COVID time, so it was very different. It was very much just about the racing. You go to the race weekend, there's not all the hoo-ha and everything else. But obviously elements that is nice because then you can just enjoy him for him. You can focus solely on just the racing aspect and I can be there to support him. But, you know, same thing is when the atmosphere is back. It's the same with us with our cycling racing. When the atmosphere is back, there is something special about that. And that's when you really realise, you know, with that sport, it's like it has that definitely that wow factor of, the energy and everything like before before the races and I think for me it's more it's like I didn't think I would get so nervous watching him race and and it's not so much like I'm scared for like the danger side it's more it's like I just want to be asked for the best I can that he has the best race but no there's so many factors that you know that aren't in his control and I think yeah from that side it's yeah been you know things to learn but yeah it's also exciting to go on that journey with him and when I can and same thing, it's been really nice to have him at my races. Well, I was about to say, he's a big supporter of yours as well. He comes to your races. I, I heard as well, he even stands on the slide and <laughs> handed out bidons to the girls in your team as well. He's really in the thick of it, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. You know, I've been super lucky with my team with Ken and Tran that they have been so supportive because I'd say on the cycling side, it's probably not as common to really have your partner there as much as he is. Like, sure, they can come, but more that always be a bit to the side. But, you know, with my team, like, they've always been really supportive to make sure you're happy as as an athlete and what that takes, you know, is, in, you know, they see what's important. And obviously they got to know Valtteri, he came, I think it was the first one about training camps and he connected really well with my team boss. And, you know, he is in general just a very easy person to have around. Like, he's super calm, but at the same time also quite interested. Like, he loves the tech side, like, this one thing again where the F1 and cycling overlap it's you know like the aerodynamics and be like yeah. yeah you know that could be a little bit better and things like <laughs> this and but then yeah so then he comes to the race and okay he can go with somebody to see the different points so he can see more than just like the start and the finish which is nice for him but they're like okay you can hand out biddens too and he just doesn't <laughs> I think he enjoys it and I think the I girls get that. kind of a bit of a laugh out of it as well but I see <laughs> From my side, it's been really nice that he has really been integrated into the team and he is basically part of the team. So, yeah. yeah. I would love a photo of, um, you might be this hotshot F1 driver, <laughs> but yeah, just handing out the bidons yeah. on, the, on the side as well. I think that's, that's yeah. really awesome. You, I haven't really talked much about your creative side, but you design Valtteri's 
helmets as well. That's awesome. There's got a bit of pressure as well. You're putting your, you know, your design yourself and artworks out there. That's uh, there's a bit of pressure that would come with that as well. Huge pressure, but it's mainly me putting it on myself. But sure. um, I may have yeah, just done so. that for you as well. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it is something that's become quite fun. Definitely at the start, as we talked about pressure, it was really like, okay, because I had zero experience in designing helmets. Like for me, it's like, yes, I studied the fashion. I learned a little bit of the graphic side through that. From that then, you know, I played around with some cycling designs. That was one area I was doing for a little bit. But with this, it's like, you know, it was something nice that he liked the idea of me designing something for him and he was happy to give me the reins. And he was also pretty open to whatever I design. Of course, it's a bit of a team effort. Like I'll say, most likes me saying, okay, I got this idea, that idea, blah, blah, blah. He's like, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he'll say yes or no if he likes them. And then he kind of just leaves it with me. And most of the time he likes it, which is good. But yeah, like from the very first time, I was like, okay. It's just, you know, like creating, because on the computer I'm doing it as a 2D space versus you need to think how it looks on a 3D space. And then the other challenge is you have to, you know, work around their team partners. It's like, so I want the full creative side, but then I have to balance that with respecting, you know, the guidelines for the branding and stuff like this. So it's always that that balance, but, but it's been a lot of fun and, you know, something I enjoyed. And definitely as I see progress with each helmet, it's like, yeah, I am also learning things myself. And, you know, I design it on the computer, but then he has his um, helmet painter, and still do the painting so I'm always like okay is he going to be able to do this and it's always incredible how much <laughs> he is able to because obviously on a computer there's certain things that are easy to do on a computer but doing that you know an artistic oh, space right. so then it's almost hand painted yeah on. yep wow yeah. how do you know yeah, yeah cool so it's all everything's a collaborative effort but it's been a lot of fun and you know so we have like the one for the whole season so of course that one needs to be something quite because that's the driver identity but then you know we do some special editions for certain races and I think because the designs I do because I'm not coming from the the space of doing a regular helmet they are very different to maybe what other helmet painters do because they go for the more racy style with a bit of influence of the place versus I like to have the story like sort of connects really to the place so that's been fun always being like okay what this time what that time and yeah we had some fun and so you have OzGP this weekend I've done a fun Aussie helmet for him so yeah, a few yeah, proper awesome. Aussie, Aussie oh, I um, love it. true blue words like we've got fair dinkum on the top of the helmet yeah <laughs> that's his awesome. like favorite cool. Aussie words so we I always like to have fun with it as well like so it's yeah. not too serious yeah um I just quickly before we go gravel racing is something that you're into now just explain to me what that is and and are you loving it yeah, so gravel racing, it's like one of these kind of newer disciplines. Yeah. It's, I call it like a breakaway discipline or a bit of a cowboy discipline. You know, it's cowboy. the one that gravel over the recent years, like it started, you know, people would just take the road bikes, be like, it's past this whole search and discover mentality where more people are wanting to like get off the, the route that's well-traveled and find the less-traveled route. I kind of start, I think, with people just, just exploring more, adventuring more, and then they're like, yeah, we should make a race of this and – it's so then it's growing with that and a lot of the big races are in America but it is growing more throughout the world it was proposed for me by my team when I was renegotiating a couple of years ago that said you know they've seen I've been racing for a long time maybe need a new stimulus and for our brand partners was also an area that they wanted a bigger exposure for so the idea was proposed and of course I love the idea because I like the idea of 
having something different. Like road is still my number one, but having like that outlet every so often. So then it's kind of gone from there and go race is just fine. It's like much more community, much more relaxed environment. The racing is hard. A lot of it's really long, which that's definitely the one side that I find a bit more challenging because, you know, I like the short, fast, let's get it done. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's more the atmosphere of like a triathlon, I guess you could say, where you have pros racing, but you also have amateurs all together. Everybody's there for their different reasons. Some are just trying to get to the finish line. Some are there to race, you know. There's always like beers at the end. The start can be a bit hectic, I would say, you know, because yeah. it is a mass start, but they do try to say have the pros at the front and then sure. the rest behind. Yeah. So, but then pretty quickly, that what a lot of them do, they'll start like big and then they try to make some technical sector early on to then stretch it out. So then, you know, it's a bit more safe. But yes, the skill levels are a bit different, but it's just really fun discipline that's growing in a big way. And yeah, for me, it's something I'm enjoying as, you know, that kind of, as I said, that outlet from the road. So, no, I have my stressful, race hard, super highly competitive road stuff. And then I have, you know, a month here where and then I go off, do some gravel races. And yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Um, so, if every podcast we ask someone close to you or someone who's been along in your journey um, to record a secret message um, to you, and you actually mentioned, um, this athlete a little bit earlier. It is, of course, Nettie Edmondson, who's come from your hometown as well and is a two-time Olympian and amazing Australian cyclist as well. And this is what Nettie had to say. Hello, Tiff. It's Nettie here. Uh, how funny to find you here on this podcast. It's a, um, it's an honour to be able to say a few words about you and how you've inspired me in my journey. Um, as a lot of people know, we went to the same high school. And so you were in year 12 when I was in year seven. And we both went through the same pathway through the South Australian Sports Institute's talent search identification program. And through that, you were always a role model for me. And I looked up to you and thought, well, hey, if, if you're doing this and doing well, then potentially I could follow what you're doing and so on. I remember being so nervous at school going up to talk to you, but I just, I just pretended I faked it. And um, you were always so welcoming and, and, and open to, to listening. So I really appreciated that at a young age. And um, it wasn't only this that you inspired me with. Um, I chose track sprinting and you chose road racing and there was a point in my career where I was no longer happy with track sprinting and I didn't know what to do because I wasn't finished with the sport but I was just not happy and then you had posted on Facebook or probably MySpace at the time a photo of you going down to the lake in Italy and having a wonderful time after a bike ride and I was like well if Tiff can go to Italy and ride a bike well then maybe I could do that too and I was like, maybe I could use this bike to see the world. And so you were a major part of my decision to swap from track sprinting to track endurance because that meant that if I did track endurance, I could I would have to do road as training. And then that meant that I could maybe race on the road and follow what you did. So you led by example and you, and without probably realizing it, you inspired me to swap over to, to track endurance. And that's where my career began. Yeah, so I'm very, very grateful for what you did. And you... I think it's it's more just what you do off the bike. Like you live your life and you're not just absorbed by cycling. And now that I've retired, that's what I value the most is is the people that I've met and the places I've been. And I do think that you were fundamental in inspiring that in me. So thank you for what you've done. Um, and 
yeah, I look forward to many more adventures. Obviously, we we don't see each other a lot. Whenever we do catch up, we always have a fantastic time and go cafe hopping and um, come back to little old Adelaide. So, and that's what I think is so wonderful about you is like even though your life has taken such different turns in the last few years, you're still a, a, a local Adelaide girl. Like you, you're able to to come back and enjoy sitting at a local cafe versus flying around the world as a superstar, um, which is just, it's so nice. You're just so adaptable and you, yeah, you thrive. And I think, like I said before, that's my absolute favorite thing about you is just how much you live, live life and you do it your way. So keep on being you and keep up the good work. And I really, I look forward to seeing you again soon, wherever in the world that may be. Yeah. It's really nice. (laughs) Definitely brings some memories. (laughs) <laughs> like I said, with school, because I, and we also joked about this, like, because I, she obviously remembers me, but then I also equally remember her because she was like this, like, good at everything type student, like getting all the awards in the assembly, but then also being this amazing, like, athlete as well, like, already in year seven. And yeah, yeah, we've definitely had some good times together. She's but a yeah. legend, Nettie. She is indeed. <laughs> also great to see her doing some, you know, finding her new pathways since retiring. Yeah, 100%. Um, so our final question, and that we finish off every podcast, if you could go back and tell little Tiff Cromwell, who hasn't yet done the testing for SA and is about to embark on, on that process, if you could go back and give that little Tiff Cromwell a message from yourself now, what would that message be? Uh, yeah, just enjoy every opportunity. Don't put too much pressure on yourself and... Yeah, life's for living and not for worrying. Well, Tiff you definitely have lived life. And um, I like Nettie. I love living vicariously through your Instagram as well. I've followed you for a very long time, um, way back when. Um, but yeah, I've absolutely enjoyed following your journey. I've really enjoyed this conversation as well. So thank you so much for sharing your story on On Her Game today. And thanks so much for having me and yeah, giving us the opportunity to tell our story. It's been great to chat. Thanks, Tiff. On Her Game is presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggins.